City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, and it's City Limits, it's the second winter, is it the second? Yes, it's the second winter of the month. I missed last week, so I'm a bit confused. Uh, but last week was the first Wednesday, and, um, and uh, Meg and Eugenia, who are here with me today, I'm Kevin Healy, and Meg Kimberly and Eugenia Zubchenko um, last week did a great program. Um, Thank you, Kevin. Them, so I thought I'd better rush in today. Cause <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. I was, just... al- I was always going to bring in the song, I Get Along Without You Very Well. Just <laughs> you have no idea how hard we had to work during the week. Yeah, I couldn't well. wait for you to come back and organise all the interviews. I know. <laughs> oh, this is what Kevin does, does. Oh, my week. God, I know. Eugenia <laughs> and I, I've spoke more to Eugenia than anyone else that week. Well, we've only got, uh, I'm going to pour some tea while we're talking. Uh, I've only, we've only got one guest today, but it's a, a bloke called Brendan Dobby, who is a lawyer with the Environment Defenders Office in New South Wales. We've mentioned this story over recent weeks, and we've finally got him. Um, and uh, make a cup of tea. Yes, please. Um, and um, and it's about the recent, well, about a number of things, but it's mainly about the recent court case in New South Wales that sent the fossil industry into absolute apoplexy. Um, because the judge ruled that climate change and the impact on climate change and other social conditions like the impact on the local communities should be taken into account. This was a decision of the Land and Environment Court, which they have up there. We don't have one of those. We have VCAT, which covers a broad range of things, but um, they have a specific Land and Environment Court, as my microphone looks like it's about to sink. Oh, no. (laughs) That microphone is out. It's got the droop. Uh. I'll give it another bush there. There we are. Nice. That's good for radio, giving it a push. Um, (laughs) And uh, and so we're going to have Brendan on in the last half of the program. We were hoping to get an update on the housing situation because they're moving in suddenly mm-hmm. to on these demolitions and the takeover of uh, public housing. But um, I was hoping Howard might get back to me. But he left a mess. Howard Howard had a message on his on his phone saying he was away, but leave messages. And I thought, well, maybe if he gets the message, he'll ring from where he is right. and come on. But he didn't. He didn't. Violin. So we missed mm. out. Yeah. Oh, we can look forward to that yeah. next week, maybe. But he, he, is, he said he's, he'll be back uh, later this week, so we can get on to that. And next week is housing anyway. Yeah. So. And we'll be in and keeping with the theme yeah. next week. Yeah. yeah. And next week, by the way, we will also be talking about, um, there's a report floating around, I think we've all now read, about the western suburbs and how homeless groups out there, which we will have all read by next week. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I think I probably forgot to give that to you, <laughs> Homeless groups out there are... Um, uh, refusing to send people to particular hotels and motels and other emergency accommodation because there's not enough proper emergency accommodation mm. for people and uh, <clears throat> and the places they're sending them to are so dreadful that it's worse than being on the street almost for people. And yeah, somehow is, some of these hotels manage to just keep on going because they're getting paid by the government to provide emergency oh, shelter goodness. and they're substandard yep. Yep. accommodation yeah. by any standards and no one would ever pay to go there themselves, their own money. Yeah, no, yeah. I drove past one of the places mentioned in the report on the weekend coming back from the mountains and, yeah, it just looked really tired, yeah. <laughs> surrounded by cyclone fencing. It looked kind of yeah. demolished, but I think it's still functioning. Yeah, so we'll look at that issue next week and hopefully get someone from that area. Plus we'll have someone from the Housing with Age, well, Piona, I guess, from the Housing with Age Action Group coming in and uh, talking about the issue with us as well. It'll be a busy day. Yeah. yeah, and, of course, Monday this week we had our Moomba holiday and um, I just want to read... This is my little Herald Sun bit, I guess, but the Herald Sun... Um, uh, talked about the king and queen. The queen is some woman who reads the weather on telly and bloke was a soccer player, the king this year. Um, of the Moomba Festival. Yeah. Yes, then, and their float yeah. was inspired by Swanson Street's landmark Manchester Unity Building, so it must have looked wonderful. Pointy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you'll be pleased to know, though, um, this is the great part. It's so much fun, isn't it? Trees, toadstools and butterflies cruise alongside mad scientists, dragons and giant, a giant llama. What a wonderful day for people. That sounds awesome. Uh, I'm fun. done with that. Hey, I'm sorry I missed that. But anyway, <laughs> um, 
But I raise that because, in fact, I can recall when Moomba, and it's still in the calendar listed as Labor Day, but that's the last you ever see of Labor Day in terms of mm-hmm. Labor Day. Uh, <laughs> and it used, and years, years ago, of course, Labor Day did mean that unions conducted the march and there were union floats. And in those days, unions had wonderful floats and wonderful banners. Uh, and they so you had these this, these great marches on Labor Day of unions and floats and marches. But then, of course, Mumba took over. Uh, Mumba, uh, we're told in Indigenous language, meant get together and have fun. But my information from Indigenous people is that it actually means something much ruder than that. <laughs> and, they, and they played a trick on them. Um, but... Um, you know, it, it's it's that all that thing about toadstools and things. I mean, it, it's all part of the ongoing campaign for events that take people's mind off the the uh, bread and circuses, etc. Um, campaigns that make people don't think about things. And in fact, in the early days of Mumba, when unions said, "Well, it's Labor Day, we want to have a float in it," they were banned because they were political. So they actually, mm. the Mumba committee banned anything political, mm. and unions were actually banned from marching in their traditional. Labor Day March. Mm. 3CR knew that it was Labor Day, though, so mm. that's there was a an good exciting thing. Facebook post. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. It's one of, the, one of the few places. And for a few years, a bloke called Jim Simmons, who was a state member, an ex-union official who became Minister of Industrial Relations, he he conducted an event at um, a lake, well, I can't go to the lake school now, but at, at a reservoir, which is where he lived. Um, and there was, we had, I used to go out to it and we used to have an annual event there to celebrate Labor Day mm-hmm. after, after the march was replaced by Moomba. But um, Jim died and that died off as well, I think. But there was another event I heard on 3CR. There was some event on Monday being held to commemorate. Oh, it was, a, it was something at the eight-day memorial because that was the beginning mm-hmm. of Labor Day, of course. It was about the eight-hour eight day. Mm-hmm. And um, there was something going to happen there on Monday. So at least some people are still remembering that it is actually Labor Day on mm-hmm. Yeah, because Melbourne has some pretty unique yeah. labour rights history, doesn't it, Kevin? Mm, indeed it does, mm. yes. So, yeah. so uh, and there's all the, the monument the, in the Trades Hall and the staircase stairwell, there's the names of the people involved in the campaign actually still on the wall there. So Yeah, right, anyway. cool. Yeah. Awesome. I, um, okay. I work yeah. at Melbourne University and ironically they choose not to, or not ironically, they choose not to celebrate Labor Day. <laughs> yeah, I Considering know. the, yeah. uh, I believe it was stonemasons yeah. from that were building yeah. one of the buildings at Melbourne Uni mm. that started that strike that led to the eight-hour day yeah, movement, right? right. So, yeah. yeah. The, well the disputes continue. Uh, <laughs> so do they replace movie. it with something else? Do they pay double time? No, they all have to work. Time? So it's, and you don't get any public holiday pay or anything like that? No. I mean, I luckily don't work Mondays anyway, but mm. everyone else was there. Yeah, okay, if they replaced it with May Day as a public holiday and gave you yeah. May Day off, that'd be all right. Yeah. Yeah, quid pro quo, so to speak, <laughs> um, or get rid of Anzac Day. Do they, do they give you Anzac Day off? I think so, because that's a national holiday. But some of the people from there must have gone to war. Yeah, well, maybe double standards there somewhere, I would have thought, maybe. Yeah, Just want to play up a headline. This was in the Financial Review last week, and I thought this doesn't really say a lot for uh, Kim, but nonetheless, the headline is, it's about the, obviously, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump and the weapons thing, and the headline is, Kim plays Trump for a fool over weapons. And I thought, well, he might, but it's not much of a challenge, is it? I mean, mm. <laughs> playing Trump for a fool, yeah. it's uh, anyone could do it, I would have thought. God. Um, yes. He likes to hang out with dictators and autocrats and <laughs> <laughs> Putin and Kim Jong-un. Well, yeah. he's got... Uh, all, yeah, it's all a bit over, disturbing. You know, yeah, I mean, I was taking notes from these guys, maybe. Well, those people, of course, you can't believe what you read in the press either, although I'm not going to suggest I want to defend North Korea, but uh, but it's, uh, it's pretty you know, yeah, what, we get in, what we get in the media is, particularly what we're getting now in Venezuela, of course, where it's totally distorted what's coming out in the media. Mm. You know, they, the, the, it's a classic case, isn't it? The, the Yanks, the, this bloke they're putting up as the new leader, they're all recognising was a puppet of the US, he trained there. Um, He's very right wing. Very right wing. Uh, He, under US direction probably, but certainly he boycotted the election, so only about 40-something percent voted and Maduro got elected. And now they're saying he's not the legitimate leader because so few people voted. They having having said, we we boycott the vote, then say, well, now Mm. so few voted it's not legitimate. And I, who didn't even contest it, 
um, am the legitimate leader, for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, he hasn't been, he hasn't been um, democratically elected by any stretch. No, no, no. And, um, and of course, one can also say if the US is saying, well, they weren't, you know, it's such a small vote, we shouldn't recognise it, then less, about 40% of people usually vote in US presidential elections. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so um, if that's the case, we should recognise someone else as president of the United States. Over the <laughs> You're putting yourself someone? up for a candidate, oh, Kevin? No, I don't want to run the capital world, but uh, <laughs> although, have hang on. Let, me, let me rethink that one, hang on. I think you'd have a, a great time. Yeah, I'll give that a bit of thought. <laughs> I must admit, when um, BHP used to advertise for uh, senior PR people or um, ASIO, advertise, <laughs> ASIO advertise for ages, I thought, gee, you could apply and get the job and spend about a week before they wake up what you were doing <laughs> and totally destroying them. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Wasn't that what you were doing when you were a journalist? Though? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> took Rupert Murdoch yeah. seven years to work that out. <laughs> I survived seven, not AZO, are they? seven years of that empire. Um, actually, there was an article in the Age in the last week or two um, by a bloke called Michael Rail R A H I double L Rail or Rahil Rail, I guess. He's an architect and design director. Do you know him at all? No. At, at Rational Environmental Design Studio. Um, Sounds exciting. <laughs> yeah, but he writes an article about the Apple proposal for Federation Square, which is about the submissions have just closed recently, mm-hmm. and they're about to um, and the, the Heritage Commission, or whatever it's called, mm. is about to make a decision. Heritage Victoria is about to make some sort of decision over it. And he talks about how at the start people didn't like it, but people have now realised the way it was designed is actually works well for Melbourne. And the, he says, the way the Apple stores the, No, the way the Federation, Federation, Federation Square, Square itself. And yeah. he said, at the heart of the design was an urban public space with the buildings arranged around the periphery. The urban landscape of buildings around the urban public space forms an integrated whole. The completed design has delivered on the aims of the competition, which was held originally about the square, mm-hmm. and provided as a bonus a public gathering space that Melbourne has responded to and taken to its heart. The complex at Fed Square has become a distinctly Melbourne icon. Then he goes on to say... The Apple store is designed as an icon for Apple, not Melbourne. Mm. Similar Apple icons are proposed for around the world. The one in Melbourne on this site won't be about Melbourne. It will be about Apple. Mm. An Apple icon store in the iconic heart of Melbourne at Fed Square will appropriate the kudos that the current design has earned while diminishing that kudos. And so he goes on in that vein and he, um, he says... I believe that the Fed Square design has more than delivered on the aims of providing an iconic image for Melbourne and a true public gathering place for the people of Melbourne. It is the city square long sought after. And uh, he says, I urge Heritage Victoria to deny the permit application and the government to recognise the unique value of Fed Square to protect it and nurture it sensitively and to step in to prevent this proposal from going ahead. Mm, Right on. That's great. It's true. It's a really special place. In yeah. the CBD, in the city, in the centre of the city. Yeah, and of course, you know, allowing a giant multinational corporation to build an, <laughs> a flagship store in the middle of it is not going to contribute anything to That's... what Melburnians want or need. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. Gone. And Apple have this strategy all around the world, as he hinted at, that um, they're buying, they want their places to be places that people gather which obviously is how they, you know, inadvertently advertise to us, mm. just like Facebook does and, and Instagram does and all mm. of these things. They capture your attention when you're sort of like passing by or scrolling through and then they sell your attention. So that's what they're trying to do is they put themselves in locations where they're going to have a lot of eyes and a lot of people <clears throat> and then they, they sell your, their, your attention, mm. you know, or they buy it, you know, or steal it. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's, I think it seems to me part of this like narrative that certain companies like Apple try and um, encourage that they're kind of doing something good for everyone. Exactly. You know? like it's crazy. Mm. There was talk about having some sort of public education component of this Apple store when I was reading about it way back when, mm. which, you know, I mean, that's it's a little kind of gesture towards something that might be good for people, but it's still ultimately with the aim of selling more Apple products. So, mm-hmm. yes. you know, yeah. we have to be a bit sceptical about these yeah. things. 
And unfortunately, we quoted, we talked about it before and we interviewed some people from the group opposing it, but the, the people, the Federation Square people themselves, who sort of see themselves as independent of government, although they, you know, that's a fine line there yeah. somewhere, surely, yeah. um, they, are, they were arguing in purely, in purely commercial terms about what it's going to bring in terms of money, etc. Yeah. to the as if they yeah. couldn't survive yeah. without mm. having this investment of yeah. money in yeah. the and indeed he makes the point in that article somewhere that if, if that is a problem then the government should give more money to make sure the square is preserved and stuff yeah. as it is I mean yeah that's, the irony is that Federation Square seems to be run like a private company whereas what the writer in that article was saying is that it is Melbourne's most important public space why, mm. sh- why should we be operating it under that model mm. Mm. Yeah. you know let's, yeah. let's actually go the opposite direction and just make it a public good and then we can use that space however we want. We don't need to rely on corporations to fund it. Exactly. Yes. Yep. All right. Um, <laughs> What's next? <laughs> well, next is um, just the way the Labor Party works. Uh, in, in, in New South Wales, the, the leader, because they've got an election next Saturday week, the leader has promised that he um, will get rid of the no grounds evictions rule over there where landlords can give tenants um, notice of eviction without any reason, hmm. as long as they get 90 days notice. And he wants to wipe that out. Uh, but he, he did say, apparently, in a speech that the, inst- the Real Estate Institute supports it. But, in fact, they've come out and said they don't. They've negotiated, but they don't support it. And what I wanted to reflect on was that he says, oh, well, I believe they did because I was told by my minister or whatever. Um, but if that's the case, we'll sit down and talk with them and come up with a sensible set of grounds, where, et cetera, et cetera. So, once again, they're prepared to go back and uh, mm. once industry starts screaming and mm. talk to industry, which uh, we might raise it later with our guests because industry seems to con- you know, always think the government has to consult it on matters um, when they want to change laws about yeah. taxes or anything else. This, this week, the um, we might raise it later, but the Western Australian EPA has um, come out with a ruling that all resource industries, and over there they're massive, the gas ones mm. in particular, um, have, to, have, to, have, to be, um, have to be emission neutral, climate neutral, um, and right. and the industry screaming and yelling and saying they weren't consulted, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they need to be consulted on these matters. And I always think, you know, if governments are going to change the law, say about robbery and murder, should they consult the Murderers and Armed Robbers Association or something <laughs> before they change the law, just because um, you know they need to well, they yeah. need to consult. Mm. Yeah. I mean, maybe they should consult everyone. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> what was that? Actual democracy. <laughs> Hang on, I think I heard... What did you say? <laughs> I just had a temporary mental lapse. Don't worry. <laughs> I, hope it, well, I hope it was temporary. <laughs> um, on, on, because today's our energy day as well, um, a couple of weeks ago on the Age front page story, people, most people would have seen it, I guess, how Victoria's energy consumer watchdog has lashed power companies for cutting off a record number of households in the face of, of steeply rising prices. More than 60,000 customers had their power cut off last financial year, up 21% from the previous, etc., with the average level of debt reaching almost $1,500 as prices slipped 16%. And it goes on and on and on. Oh, so on average, the people that were cut off, they each household owed... On average, fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and they say they accuse energy retailers of running inefficient, ineffectual hardship programs for those unable to pay their bills. The, the programs led to almost two thirds of customers having their power cut off anyway because they couldn't meet the company's requirements. So presumably they make requirements that people can't meet anyway. And uh, well, yeah, I don't know what on they, they go. Yeah. And there's also an, a separate article um, in the last few days, energy customers have reported being overcharged as much as thousands of dollars because of estimated bills. And this is mainly happening with gas where they say they can't get to the meter mm-hmm. and they're getting massively overcharged. There's some electricity, but um, they reckon that smart meters are supposed to overcome that, but they can also be misread because mm-hmm. they can be read remotely and it's one of the reasons we oppose them. And in mm-hmm. fact, I've still managed to hold them at bay. of. I've, I've refused to get a smart meter, and uh, mm. and, and I've, I've held them at bay thus far. And uh, because one, 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 it gets rid of jobs because the people who used to read the meters won't be needed. Yeah. Secondly, you're paying for something you'd never own, and thirdly, you're depending on them at some remote computer somewhere to get it right. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like so many um, mm. things in in these industries, like going to. Um, 
the, the supermarket and, and there's no person there to serve you. There's just like one person minding 20 machines that you serve yourself. Yeah, and well, I refuse to use those. One, because yeah. I'm a technical idiot and probably can't. <laughs> but, but secondly, because I because the obvious reason that they're... Uh, you have to resist the to, rise of machines, yeah. Designed, well, no, yeah. they're designed to get rid of jobs. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so I think, well, I want to get served by someone. You know, I don't want to do something yeah. that someone else is supposed to get paid for. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Yeah. They should give us a mm. discount on our um, yeah. on our <laughs> products if we're, so, if we're checking so ourselves out. <laughs> how long it took, what the hourly rate <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And there we are. Here's 15 we're bucks done. back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a couple of things before we go to our guest in a few minutes. But the, once again, superannuation has been on the, on the agenda. And uh, despite the fact that they, all the attempts by Kelly O'Dwyer, et cetera, to have uh, unionists taken off the... De- you know, directorships of boards. Of course, we know it all backfired at the Royal Commission when it was the one she wants actually on the board. She got nailed. Mm. Um, but they, they haven't stopped trying. And uh, last week, um, Greg Combay, um, who's you know ex ex member of Parliament, ex ACTU secretary, who's now one of the heads of of the super thing um, of, of industry super came out and said that industry super funds, that super funds, or at least business itself, sorry, business itself should stop thinking short-term profit and think long-term and about its customers, etc. And that super funds should take that into account in investing. And this caused screaming and yelling from the usual sources <laughs> about interfering and unions interfering in business, etc., etc. And in fact, Jennifer Westacott, who's the head of the Business Council of Australia, these are the people who scream and say that we must get independent directors on super boards, independent being the bankers and the people who've been taking people down for years. Mm. Um, and she came out and said that the this is terrible. The unions are, are try, uh, could go as far as trying to determine who should sit on company boards, which is none of their business. And you think at that point... Why don't they ever listen to what they say? Yeah, um, and see and, the and yes, yes, hypocrisy just, of just it. A, well, I, I thought there was a touch of hypocrisy yeah. there. Yes, yes. <laughs> now you mention it, yeah. um, but Heather Ridout. Now this is interesting. Heather turned Heather's turned out to be Comrade Heather. She's um, <laughs> she was a former head of one of the big mobs as well, and she's on one of the super industry super boards. But she came out and defended um, the the super. Well, she's Australian super chair chairman. It says here actually. She's a woman, Heather Ridout, and Chair she's t- told the government to stop politicising how the $145 billion investor manages its holdings, saying trustees, whether from industry or uni- unions, leave their hats at the boardroom door. And she says they're doing a good job and they have a right to talk to business about their practices, every right to talk to BHP about its work practices, and, uh, and has had many discussions with the mining giant, including about its dam failure in Brazil and its tax practices. Mm. Um, now, this led to an absolute screaming match. Now, this is a woman who used to be the hero of the, of the business class, you know, Heather Ridout, head of the Chamber of Profits. <laughs> and um, James, um, James Patterson, who's a Liberal senator, he accused her of being captured by trade unions. She'd made an unconvincing defence of the politicisation of industry super. Shockingly, partisan comments like this show exactly why Australian super and their lobbyists are wrong to oppose independent directors on super funds. <laughs> Australians' retirement income should not be used as a political plaything by a dying union movement. Miss Ridout would do better to remember her fiduciary duties rather than running the, t- the latest talking points of militant unions. And Tim Wilson, who um, is chairs, you know, we know him, ex, ex industry, ex um, Institute of Public Affairs, mm. who recently held his own inquiry as House of Representatives Economics Committee into the Labor Party policy on franking. And when you all recall, that was a wrought of an inquiry um, saying how terrible it is that they're going to take money away from people who don't pay tax, who get money from taxes but don't pay any. Mm. Terrible thing. He, he really he really nailed Heather Ridout. He said, this woman once participated in a Fabian conference. Does anything more need to be said? She's what? either an apologist for union strangling of industry or completely captured and foolish. And I don't think she's foolish. And then Josh Frydenberg um, has written to the uh, Prudential Regulator to express alarm that industry super funds are using their leverage as investors to pressure companies, etc., etc., etc. So it's back in the news and going well. 
And then just yesterday, or Monday, the front page, and I need to read on, super funds threat to share market now on the front page of the financial review. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. Oh, Escalating. It, it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? But they, they, they should get rid of super altogether, obviously. Well, perhaps they should. I, I mean, don't mind. A, if they, they let me do what I want with my money instead of making me invest it. Uh, the idea that I'm going to have some money when I retire. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. Other people are. People who work full-time. People who don't have to like work part-time because they have to be a carer or... Yeah have other commitments or can't work full-time because of mental or physical health reasons. Mm. None of those people are ending up with any any money out of their superannuation accounts. They're paying fees and maybe maybe I'll have like $100,000, $200,000. How long is that going to last me in the future? A loaf of bread already costs $10. But like the, how much is it going to cost? It's going to be $100 for a loaf of bread. Clim- like, climate, climate change might come to your years rescue. From now. Just think about it. Climate change might come to your rescue. I'll just be like living on a mountain in Tasmania yeah, yeah, growing yeah, my yeah, own yeah, We yeah, won't yeah, have yeah, any bread yeah, by then. Yeah, yeah, be eating yeah, pellets. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, right. no, it says here super funds are set to threaten the role of the Australian share market as they grow larger under the weight of trillions of dollars of funds and move to take full ownership of companies rather than invest in them through shares. Oh, I'm willing cetera, to sacrifice. Oh. I'm willing to take my money oh. out of this system. <laughs> my $20,000 so or whatever. Doesn't it just get worse and worse and worse? Mm. Absolutely, absolutely terrible. Maybe we'll do a special show on superannuation. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, yeah mm. we just did, didn't we? <laughs> we got that was more of a well, rant. Actually, I mean, it, it, <laughs> is, yeah, it, it is a show. problem because they are investing in capitalism, and uh, you've got workers workers investing and exploiting other workers because and all that. So there are real conflicts. It's of complex. Interest there. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Anyway, look, let's take a break and we'll go to our guest. Brendan Dobby is with the Environment Defender's Office in New South Wales. He was part of a case recently we've talked about on this program before in the New South Wales Land and Environment Court where the judge um, ruled, the chief judge, in fact, in that case, ruled that a, um, a mine in the Gloucester Valley couldn't, could not go ahead uh, because of climate change and other social issues. Brendan, um, before we go into more detail and can you just background for us this case and um and what led to this decision sure kevin so um this was a proposal for a greenfield um coking coal mine in uh quite close to the town of gloucester which is in the upper hunter valley in new south wales um it was originally proposed back in 2012 um it went through a series of amendments until it was finally rejected by the uh, Planning Assessment Commission, which is kind of an independent body which acts as a delegate for the Minister of Planning. Um, and that refusal happened in December 2017. Um, and the New South Wales Department of Planning had also uh, recommended that the project be refused on the basis of its um, kind of inconsistencies with the underlying planning um, of the region and also its visual impacts. Um, after that refusal, the mining company Gloucester Resources Limited appealed to the Land and Environment Court um, in an attempt to um, have that refusal overturned. And the court um, has what's called a merits review jurisdiction, which allows it to step into the shoes of the original decision maker, which this, in this case was the Planning Assessment Commission, and make a completely um, new decision. So that was how it got before uh, Chief Judge Preston in the Land and Environment Court. Right, and then what happened there? Uh, Well, it was kind of a a fairly lengthy process. Um, So we acted for a community group from Gloucester called Groundswell Gloucester, um, which is a group concerned about the impacts from mining and other unsuitable development in the um, the Upper Hunter, um, and they sought to join the proceeding. So they had objected to the mine all the way through the approval uh, and assessment process, um, and then they had the opportunity to join the proceedings once the mining company had appealed to the court. Um, and they were able to do that because they wanted to raise additional issues um, to what the minister was intending to defend Uh, his decision based on. And so they wanted to raise the unacceptable social impacts of the mine on the residents and community of Gloucester and also the impact of the mine on climate change and its um, 
impacts from greenhouse gas emissions. And so the court agreed to let Groundswell Gloucester join back in April 2018. Um, the hearing was in August and we got the decision about a month ago. Mm. And the decision, of course, was that uh, climate change had to be taken into consideration and those other social impacts as well. That's correct, yes. So the, um, the chief judge um, confirmed that um, the impacts of the mine... Uh, on global climate change were a necessary consideration um, that had to be taken into account, um, specifically the downstream emissions from the mine, so the, the greenhouse gas emissions caused by the burning of the coal that would be mined from the project. Um, and, and that's something that um, the, the mining company had suggested wasn't necessary for consideration or shouldn't be given um, any particular weight um, using the argument that um, the emissions from the burning of the coal should be assessed at the time that it's actually mm. burnt and used. And Indeed, very... that's, that's a point we've raised on this program many times, that the coal that we export should be included in Australia's footprint, but it never is. That's correct. So that's um, that's what the the chief judge and that's what he is. addressed here, um, and he found that um, emissions from local projects in New South Wales or the rest of Australia do have an indirect cumulative impact on climate change, and therefore those downstream emissions should be considered. Um, and in this case, he accepted evidence um, from Groundswell Gloucester's climate expert, um, Will Steffen, Professor Will Steffen from mm. ANU, um, in relation to the carbon budget. So that refers to the concept that there's only a finite amount of carbon that we can put into the atmosphere if we want to um, kind of limit climate change to relatively safe levels in line with our Paris targets. Um, and he accepted that if we are to do that, we need to um, make some pretty severe and rapid cuts to um, emissions. And by approving this new coal mine, um, that would not assist in achieving those goals. Mm. And so, Brendan, is it, am I understanding it right, that these um, emissions considerations wouldn't have necessarily been taken into account if Groundswell Gloucester hadn't gotten involved in the case? Um, that's right. Well, the, the judge... Um, had an obligation to consider those uh, impacts under the New South Wales planning law and also the case law relating to ecologically sustainable development. Um, so the, the case law in New South Wales is built up so that um, things like intergenerational equity are necessary considerations when these kinds of projects are uh, approved and an element of that has been found to be... Um, the, the climate change impacts of a project, but it wasn't something that the department or the minister was planning to raise in their defence of the, their refusal of the project, and, and therefore it wouldn't have um, been given the same attention as it, that, that, that Groundswell Gloucester gave it in, in the proceedings. So it's likely that it wouldn't have been such a a major part of the decision, I think. Mm, that's really interesting. Is Have there been many cases like that where a community group has had such an impact on the final decision? Um, it's relatively rare because these merits appeals in New South Wales are, are quite uncommon for these major projects. Um, so there's a, there's a process whereby, under the planning legislation, objectors and community groups um, to, to major fossil fuel pro projects do have these merits review rights. But there's a separate process whereby if the, the Planning Assessment Commission, which is now known as the Independent Planning Commission, holds a public hearing before the decision is made, then those merits review rights are extinguished. So most, most of these major projects um, go through that planning commission process and therefore the community rights to appeal to the court on the merits of the decision uh, are usually extinguished. So mm -hmm. this was quite unusual in that the because the department and the minister had re re recommended refusal of the mine, um, they didn't require the planning commission to hold a public hearing which mm -hmm. kind of kept alive the merits review rights for the 
mining company. So it was only through that process the community was able to be part of the court process and, and, and lead these other issues. Yeah, that's so interesting. Is this the first time that uh, climate change has been part of the reason for refusing uh, a planning of some kind of industry? Um, it's the first time that we're aware, definitely in Australia, that mm. a court has refused consent for a fossil fuel project because of its impacts on climate change. Um, quite possibly around the world, um, we're not aware of any other decisions of this nature, but um, it's, it's possible that there is something yeah. that we haven't come across. Wow. It certainly caused the uh, fossil industry to have to drag out the smelling salts and the oxygen because they, they couldn't, they just about collapsed. Um, and Trevis and Baker, who was on Radio National this morning, in fact, justifying coal yet again, who's one of the big owners of coal power plants, um, he actually said that this is not the law as I know it um, when after the decision was taken. And we, we, we commented at the time that the law as he knows it is that he can do what he bloody well likes. But um, nonetheless, um, was, he, was he right that this is not the law? No, that's certainly not our view. Um, we, I mean, it's obviously a landmark decision because um, because it is the first time that climate change has been used as a ground to justify refusal uh, by the court. Um, however, we see it as a fairly orthodox application of the planning law. So when, when a, a major project like this is assessed, um, basically the decision maker has to kind of weigh up the the benefits and the cons of the project and there are certain considerations that are required to be taken uh, into account, such as its, its environmental impacts, uh, which I said earlier also includes its climate change impacts. So the thing, I guess, that's different about this case is that the court has accepted um, the most up-to-date up evidence on climate change and cumulative impacts and also looked at other decisions around the world in terms of um, localised projects and their contribution to global climate change and has accepted that evidence, um, which is something that hasn't necessarily been done by um, the Department of Planning in the past when they've given approval to, to other projects of this nature. So it's, it's certainly a very orthodox application of the law. Um, it's just that the court has... Um, kind of wholeheartedly accepted the consensus on, on climate change uh, and made its decision following the law, but based on its acceptance of that evidence, um, particularly the carbon budget. Mm. So now that it's made that decision, how applicable is this as a precedent across um, other areas of the law, or is it solely related to land and environment law, if that makes sense? Um, well, it's we think it'll be very influential uh, when future decision makers are assessing other projects of this type. Right. Um, because it was a merits review decision, um, which meant that the judge could kind of make a new fresh decision, step in the shoes of the decision maker, it's not going to be necessarily legally binding on future decision makers, but we uh -huh. think that it's because this is a decision of the chief judge of the the Land and Environment Court, which has the same standing as the Supreme Court in New South Wales, then it'll obviously be something that will be very influential in the minds of um, the Department and the Planning Commission going forward. Um, but obviously, it's kind of each case depends on its own facts. Um, but one of the significant things that the Chief Judge said was that um, it, the mine wasn't appropriate uh, at this time um, because of the, the pressing need to address climate change and the fact that um, by putting new emissions into the atmosphere, it's not going to help us to, to reduce emissions and not going to help us meet um, those targets. Um, and so I think any future proposal for a significant um, fossil fuel project will certainly um, have to consider the Chief Judge's findings uh, and in that way it'll be quite influential. Um, he's also noted that um, we accepted the evidence that most of the fossil fuel reserves that we have at the moment will have to 
stay in the ground unburnt if we are to to avoid dangerous climate change. Um, and so he's basically kind of coming from the starting point that um, there has to be very good reasons economically or, or, or socially that you would approve a new uh, project which is going to have um, significant greenhouse gas emissions um, because of those climate change impacts and the need to address them. Okay, so it's influential but it's not um, sort of how everyone has to rule from this point on, it's still open. That, that's correct. Every decision maker has uh, his or her own discretion to, to, to weigh those different impacts and, and benefits mm-hmm. in the balance. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, we, we think this decision will be very influential as to how uh, future decision makers approach that task and certainly the, the response um, that's been coming from industry would indicate that they're also mm-hmm. concerned about the influence of the decision. Yeah. Well, industry generally, Brendan, at the time of the decision was saying that this could apply across the board, that any, any proposal that might emit um, CO2 uh, would come under this ruling, and so it's not just the resource industry, in fact. Is, is that possible? Um, yeah, so it's, it's, as I said, it's kind of a, a balancing task and it's discretionary and, and climate change impacts will be necessary to consider if they're relevant to the project. So it would only be projects that would make a significant contribution to global greenhouse emissions mm. uh, to which this decision would be applicable. Um, and as I said, each project depended on its own facts um, and therefore the applicability of this decision would depend on how the decision makers in the future kind of weigh those different impacts in the balance. Uh, but certainly what was significant in the Rocky Hill case uh, was that this project was a proposal um, for a coking coal mine, so it wasn't a thermal coal mine. Um, and there, there are arguments that coking coal, uh, because of its use in steel production, has, uh, I guess, a greater economic or social benefit than purely thermal coal, uh, for which there's already kind of a, a significant supply and there are alternative energy sources that could be used. Um, so even though this coal mine was for coking, coking coal, um, the chief judge still found that it's... Um, climate change impacts were a ground upon which it could be refused, along with its various other social noise, dust, visual impacts, and the fact that it was only, uh, I think, about four kilometres from the township of Gloucester. Mm. So on that point, how how much was climate change a factor in terms of um, the other issues and what were the social impacts that were brought to the court for consideration? Yeah, so climate change was uh, a separate ground of refusal. Mm-hmm. Um, so the chief judge found that he could refuse the project on its um, on its other kind of impacts alone. So they right. included the fact that it was um, not in keeping with the current land use in the area, which is a very fairly rural. Um, area, um, the fact that the kind of existing planning, zoning uh, wasn't compatible with the land use of a, of a coal mine. Um, its visual impacts, um, Gloucester's kind of in a very beautiful picturesque valley and, and so by plunking a big coal mine in the middle of it, it would um, have an impact on, on the community's um, appreciation of that. Um, there was significant noise impacts that would be affected because of the proximity of the mine to the township. Um, There were dust impacts. Um, Significantly, the chief judge found that the impacts on Aboriginal cultural heritage hadn't been considered by Mm. the mine adequately enough um, and that the the landscape itself, um, the cultural landscape, was something that needed to be taken into account rather than just kind of particular items of Aboriginal significance within the, the mining site. Um, and the, the kind of the key social impact that was addressed was the, the, the loss of the, the community's sense of place, um, mm. so the impacts that having 
uh, a big mine so close to the town would have on the community itself. So people being forced to, to move out and, and the breakdown of that social fabric um, were all things that were considered and, and the, the, the weight of all those negative impacts um, was found to be enough to refuse the mine on that basis. Um, and then climate change impacts was uh, another mm. ground upon which the, the chief judge um, used to refuse the mine. Yeah, mm. That's so fantastic. I'm um, Just to hear that those uh, criticisms and concerns of the community have actually been listened to because so many times with instances like this, those criticisms and concerns fall on deaf ears a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it was fantastic that the community had the opportunity to be uh, part of these proceedings and to, to raise all those issues um, which wouldn't have necessarily been addressed um, by by the department's lawyers. Mm. Yeah, and by other levels of government and legislator and, and decision-making. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, they, they, they are required to be considered, but potentially right. by giving the, the community the chance to actually lead those submissions in the court case um, it, it was a chance for the, the chief judge to um, put a higher weight on those impacts than maybe in the case if it was um, yeah. left up to mm-hmm. uh, the department. Yeah, Brendan, I'm actually pretty interested in the a chief judge who made these decisions. Like, this seems quite a progressive ruling. Is Does he have a bit of a history of being a, a forward thinker in this field? Um, well, he's been... I guess the leading environmental lawyer in the state. Um, certainly, his his um, judicial record is impeccable. Um, Indeed, he was attacked on from some sources because he used to work for your lot. Um, <laughs> that's the case, isn't it? That's right. He was, uh, I think, our first uh, principal lawyer back in the mid '80s. Right. See. Yes, it's a terrible record. <laughs> Defending the environment, yeah. Mm. No, I mean, yeah. he, he has uh, made public presentations and, uh, and kind of written articles on the way that um, uh, the law should be addressing issues such as climate change. Yeah, and indeed, some, some, um, some critics of the decision argued in the when it first came out that um that he was in fact putting his own his own personal views ahead of the law i think they call it dicta don't they um that that in fact it wasn't the law and that he was just putting his personal views on the environment that that's that's simply not the case apparently uh well the new south wales bar association and the new south wales law society have both come out um and made public statements in support of the chief judge following that criticism um, from the media. Uh, and they just kind of made it clear that um, that they uh, support the, the the reasoning and the impartiality of the chief judge. Um, so I, I can't really comment any further on that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and of course, this this is happening in the climate with moment where the government's screaming and yelling about coal. Um, Matt Canavan, who loves a bit of coal, the Federal Resources Minister, he said following the decision, uh, people should proceed with caution about overinterpreting a decision in a lower court and in New South Wales. It sounds like he he regards lower courts and New South Wales as absolute pejoratives. Um. Possibly. Uh, it, as, as I said earlier, the, the Land Environment Court has... It's the same as the Supreme Court, isn't it? Court. So, yeah. Um, it's, in, in a sense, only lower than the Court of Appeal and the High Court. Um, mm. um, Brendan, we won't keep you for too much longer, but um, just a question about the acceptance of the decision by Gloucester Resources. Are they... Um, moving on peacefully or is there <laughs> opportunities for them to um, look into this Yeah, further? so we have received a notice that they intend to appeal the decision. Right. Um, they have a further two months to commence appeal proceedings, um, so it's possible that they won't go ahead. Um, so we're just um, 
waiting and, and preparing for that. Um, obviously, it's a bit of a blow to the Gloucester community because they've been fighting this project for close to 10 years now. Mm. So the fact of having to go through another set of court proceedings is a bit daunting, but um, I think there's uh, kind of they're, they're very resolute there and very strong-willed, so they'll be ready to fight any appeal if it comes. Good on them, mm. yeah. But, and Brendan, while these while these sort of cases are growing, as we say around the world, people are taking taking on environmental cases. Um, we the, well the former um, attorney general in Australia, who's now an ambassador somewhere, uh, George Brandis. When when the Mackay Conservation Group won a case against Adani a couple of years ago, he accused them of abusing the law, and uh, and he had to change the law to stop environmental groups from take from abusing the law without taking into account the minor fact they actually won the case on a point of law. Um, but these attacks continue from government that somehow if environmental groups go to court, they're abusing the process. Yeah, there, there, there was a, uh, kind of a bit of that stuff in the media after the Rocky Hill decision, uh, kind of claims of green lawfare and all mm. that kind of thing. Uh, but as I said earlier, I, we think this is kind of a, a very orthodox decision and an orthodox application of the planning law. So there's nothing particularly radical about the way that the law has been applied in this decision. Um, it's just the fact that I guess it's, 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 it's the first time that climate change has been uh, given such weight uh, by the court, mm. um, such that refusal was warranted. And, and I think that just reflects the, the current um, consensus in climate science. So there's, there's, if you accept the science, um, there's nothing really radical about the way mm. the law has been applied here. Mm. Can, just, oh, yeah. oh, can you see a um, possibility in the future that uh, the the law will be leading the acceptance on climate change if governments are still refusing to engage with that seriously? Uh, we certainly hope so. And, and we um, are just about to release a law reform submission um, which would seek to have the key findings of the Rocky Hill decision codified into New South Wales law. So mm. uh, obviously that would give mm. a lot more certainty to the community and also to industry as to how these impacts should be assessed and when it would be appropriate for a new major fossil fuel development to be approved. Um, so, I mean, I think our position is that's definitely the way that... Um, the thing that should occur, um, and by having these these principles uh, put into the law, uh, into the legislation, it will certainly give everyone a lot more certainty as to how these projects should be assessed. All right, good luck with that, Ben. And it's obvious <laughs> industry couldn't believe that an environment court might actually consider the environment in a decision, um, which is no chance of having happening in Victoria, by the way. We're pretty <laughs> safe here with VCAT and the EPA. Um, but look, Brendan, thanks for your time today, and um, we'll keep in touch on it over, over a period because good luck with getting it made into law too, into, into legislation, into whatever is going to happen with the government. Yeah, thanks a lot. Great, thanks. It was okay. really good to speak with you guys. Okay. Uh, have a good day. Thanks, right, yeah, Brendan. Thanks. Brendan Dobby there, who's um, a lawyer, obviously, with the Environment Defenders Office in New South Wales. And a, a, the Environment a, Defenders Offices are all over Australia, right, from yeah, what my understanding? In Victoria, and... they've got a different name. They changed their name a few years ago, but they're called now... Uh, oh, come to me. I, I went to one of the meetings yeah. before Christmas, but anyway. I, yeah. I know them from Tassie and from being yeah. there as part yeah. of um, campaigns yeah, there. I'm just over, yeah, so heartened by that result. Yeah, fantastic yeah, organisation, great, great result. decision, great yeah. decision. Yeah. 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 No wonder industry's screaming and yelling. Yes. <laughs> Good news <laughs> to end the show today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah damn it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, next week's housing, that's always depressing. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see you all next week. Yeah, yeah till next week. Yeah.